Philip Pillsbury was a Yale graduate and was a renowned connoisseur of fine wines. He was born into a famous family. Pillsbury ended up the chairman of the Pillsbury Food Company. But on the factory floor, no other executive was as respected as Philip Pillsbury. You see, he started out as a simple miller, a laborer, like everyone else in the plant. And his three missing fingertips were proof of his employment. Whenever an employee would shake the boss's hand, when they felt that hand and those missing fingertips, it was a reminder to them that their boss was not above doing the same work he was asking of them. Philip Pillsbury understood what it was like to be in the trenches, and his workers loved him for it. Well, in a sense, these last four chapters are a handshake with the Apostle Paul. He shows off his missing fingertips. You see, there were some false teachers who had come to the church at Corinth after Paul had left town. They were criticizing and questioning his stature as an apostle. And Paul had been patient. In the first nine chapters, he had explained his ministry, his methods, and his motives. But now in chapter 10, he gets more aggressive. He takes the gloves off, so to speak. He takes on his accusers. Paul's call to the ministry was legit. How dare these charlatans belittle the work of God? In these chapters, Paul is going to hold up his fingers, his scars, and his sacrifice to prove the genuineness of his ministry. In one way, his critics were correct. Paul wasn't very physically impressive. He didn't have an overwhelming persona. He wasn't Greece's greatest orator by far. Yet God demonstrated his strength through Paul's weakness. Paul's missing fingertips, so to speak, were God's opportunity to show himself strong on Paul's behalf. Well, chapter 10 begins. Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, one of the errors the Corinthian Christians had made was to mistake meekness for weakness. Numbers 12, verse 3, referred to Moses as the meekest man in all the earth. <laughs> Moses, though, was by far a weak man. The Greek word translated meekness means power under restraint. It was used for a wild stallion after it was broken. Meekness refers to the person who has submitted to the bit and bridle of the will of God. Think of Jesus. No one has ever lived a more powerful, a more forceful, a stronger life than Jesus Christ. Yet that power was always harnessed and surrendered to the will of God. You see, to this point, Paul had approached the Corinthians gently and meekly. But his enemies had interpreted his meekness for weakness. In essence, they were saying, well, Paul is kind because he has no clout. He's tender because he's a tenderfoot. He's got no real authority. And they had mistaken Paul's humility for a lack of ability. Paul heard what the Corinthians had said about him. Oh, he can write a mean letter. But in person, oh, he's so timid. Take away his pen and Paul will just shrink in fear. Well, Paul replies to these accusations, verse 2. 
He says, but I beg that you, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. In essence, Paul is saying, if you want bold, then I can be bold. You see, he had tried to be nice in his first letter, but they had took it the wrong way. Now he needs to be more direct, and he will be. You remember Balaam, the story of Balaam? When Balaam beat his burrow three times, Balaam beat his donkey, but the problem wasn't his donkey. The problem was Balaam. Balaam was headed against the will of God, and his burrow was swerving to avoid the angel of God that was blocking Balaam's way. Finally, God opened the burrow's mouth, and the beast of burden spoke to Balaam. He says, what have I done to you that you have struck me three times? In essence, who's the real jackass here? You know, as Christians, we're called to be beasts of burden. We are servants of God. We're servants of men. God calls us to bear each other's burden. But that doesn't mean that we need to allow other people to mistreat us. You see, there comes a time when, like the burrow and like Paul, we need to be willing to defend ourselves. Being used and being abused are not synonymous. Paul loved these Corinthians. He would lay down his life to serve them, but he wasn't going to remain silent while they verbally assaulted him in his ministry. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now Paul here is explaining his ministry. He didn't walk in the flesh. Or in other words, rely on human ingenuity or human effort. Paul never resorted to gimmicks and to grunt and to grandiose schemes that didn't rely on God's power. No, he says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Paul resorted to spiritual weapons, powerful weapons. You know, nations don't fight nuclear wars with conventional weapons. And neither do Christians fight spiritual battles with fleshly or human weapons. Bright ideas and strenuous effort and human manipulations are no substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. A bank loan alleviates your cash flow crunch, but can it corral the greed that causes your rampant spending? No. A nicotine patch helps with the withdrawals, but does it supply you the calm you need? You know, when you're under the pressure, the next time you're stressed? No. A cold shower might relieve some sexual tension, but how do you conquer the lust that churns in your heart? A bottle of pills gets you to sleep at night, but is it going to resolve the guilty conscience that keeps you awake? No. Here's my point. Human remedies may do some good, but spiritual progress, real permanent change, is the result of the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Sin produces strongholds. You know, sin, it begins as a wrong choice. But then it becomes an infatuation, and then a habit, and then an addiction. 
it slowly digs down an inescapable rut. At first, sin enters our life at our invitation, but ultimately it outlives its welcome and it becomes extremely difficult to dislodge. It turns into what Paul calls a stronghold. And you can't conquer a stronghold with cleverness and with manipulation. I mean, when a sin burrows itself deep into our psyche, it only gets uprooted from the inside out. It takes spiritual power to bust up a sinful stronghold. This is why we need spiritual weapons. And what are our weapons? The truth of God's Word, the power of the Holy Spirit, prayer, faith, love, the blood of Christ, the word of our testimony, the name of Jesus, fellowship with other Christians, worship and wisdom, wisdom from above. These are all the weapons that we have, the spiritual weapons that we can use to bring down strongholds in our life. Paul tells us, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. This is how strongholds take root and build up. When we believe the lies of the devil, when we yield to the doubts about God, or when we listen to the arguments against God, that's how strongholds of sin build up. This is why Paul advises us, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, to level, to bring down a stronghold, you have to see yourself and your life in Christ. Here's Paul's strategy. Bag up your thoughts. Have you bagged up your thoughts? He's saying, take charge of your wandering mind and your fickle emotions. Make every impulse in your life harmonize with the truth that is in Christ. When my son Mac was younger, I would take him out to hit baseballs. I had two five-gallon buckets full of baseballs. I threw and Mac hit. I threw and Mac hit. I threw and Mac hit and Mac hit and Mac hit and Mac hit. When he was done, we'd have about 75 to 100 baseballs scattered all over the outfield, sometimes all over the parking lot because he was a good hitter. And then we'd have to gather them up. And so for the next 35, 40 minutes, that's what we would do. We would gather up those baseballs and return them back to the bucket. And this is the mental image I have of verse 5. We need to gather up every stray thought, every foul thought, Every thought that's been scattered about, we need to gather it up and we need to put it in God's bucket. We need to bring every thought into conformity with the will of God. And then he says in verse 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now Paul has been disciplining the Corinthians. Some had repented, others had resented. But here he says, once you've reordered your thinking to obey Christ... Once you have a disciplined mind and you live a disciplined life, then God will use you to disciple others. Paul continues, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? You see, the Corinthians were good at jumping to conclusions. They would size up a person before they heard his heart. This is what they'd done to Paul. We need to be careful lest we do this to others ourselves. You know, on a daily basis, someone drives down McDaniels Bridge Road in Lilburn, Georgia, and throws a beer bottle into the front yard of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. It happens every day. 
At one time in our church's history, Pastor Jeff was in charge of the grounds. And so he was usually the guy who ended up picking up the bottles. So when he would pull up in the morning in the parking lot, he would go out and he would gather up all of the beer bottles that had been thrown out over the night, and he would put them in his trash can in his office. I'll never forget one Sunday morning, one of the elders kind of called me to the side. He said he needed to discuss a serious issue. He put his arm around me and he kind of whispered. He said, Sandy, I think Pastor Jeff has a drinking problem because I'm always finding beer bottles in his trash can. Obviously, he had jumped to the wrong conclusion, which happens when we only examine the appearance at least our usher handled it wisely and appropriately. He came to the proper authorities. He didn't gossip and spread false accusations like the Corinthians did to Paul. Paul writes, If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. Now, now this is hard to imagine, but some of the Corinthians had doubted that Paul was even in Christ. Can you imagine questioning the apostle Paul's salvation? How could you do that? And yet Paul tells them, if, if I'm not in Christ, then neither are you. Since you are all saved through the gospel that I embraced and that I preached. He goes on, verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. Now the last thing that Paul was into was self-promotion. But you see, the Corinthians, they were forcing him to defend himself. They were backing him into a corner. They had accused Paul of writing these intimidating letters. Paul's ministry, though, was never to bully. It was only to build up. But to continue to do so, he needs to silence his critics. And so now Paul's been put on the defensive. He's going to go on and he's going to defend himself to the Corinthians. Verse 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. See, here was the beef about Paul. Oh, he's mighty with the pen but he's wimpy and he's tongue-tied in person. Now, there was some truth to this claim. A third-century novel entitled The Acts of Paul and Hecla, they give an interesting physical description of the Apostle Paul. We're told he was small in size, with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. In other words, he was impressive spiritually, but not so much physically. Other traditions say that Paul spoke with a lisp. As far as Paul's physical features and attributes were concerned, he was less than impressive to look at or to listen to. And this is why the false teachers, this is why they had jumped to the wrong conclusions as far as they could discern. You know, there was really nothing to this guy. You know, they noted his physicality and how unimpressive he was. But what they failed to notice was below the appearance. They failed to note his spirituality. 
I'll never forget the local radio station that refused to air our radio program chapter by chapter. And the station manager, he was very upfront. He told me he didn't like my voice. He said it wasn't radio quality. Well, I didn't argue with him. I'm sure it's probably not radio quality. I'm just thankful that God isn't limited to radio quality voices. For now, over the years, God has used that program all over the country. In fact, over 300 stations nationwide. And this is what the Corinthians were saying about Paul. His voice wasn't radio quality. Oh, Paul's content was good, but he needed to work on his presentation. You see, the Corinthians, they liked pastors with bling. They wanted the entertaining speakers, the athletic types, the pastors with the airs of success. To them, slick was preferable to substance. It was flash over faith. It was style. Style had replaced truth in their estimation. Warren Wiersbe tells of a pastor he had heard speak. The man was so eloquent but he was void of a biblical message. A friend next to him sort of summed up the sermon by saying, well, it's like 1 Kings 19, verse 11. The Lord was not in the wind. <laughs> Don't misunderstand. I believe in communicating the gospel as effectively and as attractively as possible, but the look is never more important than the book. Never. It's not the splash, it's the spirit that causes spiritual results. Notice verse 11, he says, Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we also will be indeed when we are present. When Paul arrives, he's going to show him just how bold he can be. After this personal appearance, they'll wish that he had sent a letter. He's going to come with his gloves on. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. Now, one of the problems with ministry is the difficulty we have with measuring our progress. You know, ministry is not like a business when you can just check on sales or profit margin and know how you're doing. I mean, you can be faithful to sow the seed of God's word, but that's no guarantee of how fruitful you'll be. In Jesus' parable of the sower, you remember he teaches a 25% success rate. That's not real good. Some seed falls on the stony ground and never takes root. Some seed gets choked out by the weeds. Some seed gets burned up by the sun. In other words, only a quarter of the seed actually takes root. In business, it's widgets you can measure. If you're selling widgets, you can measure them. How many you make? How fast you sell them? How many you sell? What price did you sell them for? You can measure your success. There's a bottom line to measure, but not so in ministry. It's much tougher to measure how well you're doing. And notice a big mistake we can make, verse 12. He says, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. It's hard to measure your success in ministry, so what do Christians do? They tend to measure themselves or measure their church against other Christians and other churches. And Paul says, that is not wise. How many people came on Sunday? How big is the building or the budget or the staff? We compare ourselves against one another. 
And again, Paul says, this is not wise. Always remember, much of Christian ministry goes on below the surface. It can't be seen. It can't be measured. You see, a pastor can be faithful to God's calling and the 20 people God gives him. Or he can be unfaithful in a church of 2,000 people. Citizens of God's kingdom, they, they need to be into growth, not just stats. And there's a difference. Verse 13 tells us, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere, sphere which especially includes you. Now again, God measures success not by what's done, but by how much of what God wanted done gets done. In other words, how faithful have you been within the sphere of ministry that God has given you? That's how you measure success. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul's sphere included these Corinthians, and he had been faithful to bring them the gospel. The Corinthians were part of Paul's parish. And Paul came to Corinth, verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors. Now, Paul never took credit for what God had done through someone else. Paul was no glory grabber. Paul pioneered in unchurched, unreached areas. As soon as he was gone, though, the false teachers would slip in. The Judaizers, they would come in and they would take over the churches that Paul had started. This is how the cults operate today. They don't target unreached folks. Oh, no, they prey on new Christians. They, they try to take them before they're grounded in their faith. And they spin their deception while they're still formulating their faith. Paul says, but having hope that as your faith is increased... We shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Paul's hoping that God will enlarge his sphere so that he can reach out and reach more people for Jesus. The false teachers, they were the glory grabbers, whereas Paul's passion was simply to serve. He was into planting new churches. He wanted to go where no man dared go before. Paul was dealing with the Corinthians so that their faith would increase so that he could then move on and plant new churches and expand his sphere of ministry. He says in verse 17, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now here's a great quote. It's from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Jeremiah says, Glory not in wisdom or in might or in riches, but glory only in the Lord. Often Christians assume that spiritual success means successful service. That if we serve God effectively and efficiently and exhaustively, He'll be pleased, but not necessarily. According to Jeremiah 9 verse 24, we're told that true success has more to do with knowing the Lord than just serving the Lord. You know, you can serve the Lord and not know the Lord. Did you know that? You can serve the Lord and not even be a Christian. Recall Martha. She served Jesus frantically while Mary just sat at his feet and spent time in his presence. And Jesus said, Mary has chosen that good part. Never forget, it's knowing the Lord that he desires. That's what he desires of us, even more so than our service. Chapter 10 closes. For not he who commends himself is approved, 
but whom the Lord commands. In other words, pastors can pat themselves on the back. They can pass out rewards. They can boast in their accomplishments. But all that matters is to one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all that matters is to hear our Lord say that over us. In the final analysis, that alone is what's going to constitute true success in ministry. That is the ultimate measurement. Well, chapter 11 begins, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. Now understand, Paul's whole line of thinking at this point was foreign to him. You know, he usually didn't talk about himself. He, he liked to shun the spotlight. But here he's going to turn it on himself. He's going to talk about himself because he's being forced to defend his ministry. Though necessary, Paul refers to it as a little folly. He says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Now notice Paul wasn't jealous of the Corinthians. He was jealous for Jesus' sake. His Lord deserves a pure and loyal bride. He didn't want to sit back and watch the church stray or be misled. I mean, what if you were the best man at your friend's wedding and you saw the bride sneak off with another man? How would you feel? Oh my, you would hurt for your friend. You would feel the betrayal that he felt. And this is how Paul felt when a Christian was disloyal to Jesus. He says, For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul viewed himself as the dad, and the Corinthians as his daughter. And it was the dad's obligation to protect the daughter's purity until one day he presented her to the groom. The church is the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. Paul was the dad of the bride, and it was his job to watch over the Corinthians so that he could then turn them over to Jesus, both pure and undefiled. This means his care for the Corinthians wasn't selfish. It wasn't territorial. He wasn't trying to control them. He just wanted to protect the heart of his Lord by safeguarding his bride. What any father wouldn't want to do the same. And as your pastor, this is how I feel. I'm a spiritual dad over a large family. That's why I'm concerned if you stray. And I'm protective of you as well. I mean, when a grandma enters into our church with big eyes and a big nose and furry whiskers and big fang-like teeth, even though she might call herself a grandma, it's my job to think, wolf, and to guard the flock of God against the wolves. This is the dad's job in the family, to protect his daughter, the bride, and this was Paul's role in the Corinthian church. Verse 3. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul has a right to worry. Satan is very skillful. Ephesians 6 verse 11 warns us about the wiles of the devil. Recall Satan's ploy, the serpent's ploy in the Garden of Eden. First he comes to Adam and Eve and he gets them to doubt God's word. He asks, has God indeed said? Are you sure? Then he gets them to deny God's word. You will not surely die. And then finally he distorts God's word. You will be like God. 
knowing good and evil. But he presents it as a desirable state rather than as a sinful state. Sadly, Eve swallowed his lies and ate the fruit. And we've been all suffering spiritual heartburn ever since, haven't we? Let's all stay true to the simplicity that's in Christ. Not get confused, not believe and buy into the lies of the enemy. Let's maintain the simplicity that's in Christ. Once there was a wise old pastor who gave some good advice to his young apprentice. He said, preach a full gospel. Christ and nothing less. A plain gospel. Christ and nothing more. And a pure gospel. Christ and nothing else. It's the KISS principle. Keep it simple, saint. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached. You know, there are some people who preach another Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of history, but a Jesus of their own concoction. Or if you receive a different spirit, not all spirits are the Holy Spirit, or evil spirits, which you have not received, or a different gospel, and there are different gospels out there. Not the pure gospel, the biblical gospel. There are other kinds of gospels out there. Bad news being passed off as good news, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul was worried about their spiritual discernment. He was worried that they would buy into these false gospels and false spirits and false Christ. They'd already revealed how gullible they were by putting up with the false teachers who had lied about him. How far are they going to go? Are they going to deny the gospel and the Holy Spirit and Jesus as well? He says, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now you see, these false apostles in Corinth, they, they were going by the title, most eminent apostle, or literally, super apostle. It wasn't enough for them to just be an apostle. They were super apostles. Kind of like what we have today when, when pastors become bishops. Not enough to be a pastor, they won't be a bishop. Then, then later they won't be an archbishop. Paul laughs at this. These super apostles, they have nothing on him. In fact, he was more of an apostle than they were. He says, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. You see, here's how you, under, here's how you evaluate a pastor, or, or an apostle for that matter. Not by their appearance, but by what they say. The content of their ministry. Not the flash, but their faith, their teaching. What gets said is far more important than how it's said. I've heard it put this way. The test of a preacher is that his congregation goes away saying not, what a lovely sermon, but I will obey. God could care less that a sermon sounds good if it doesn't do any good. He says, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. The Corinthians should have been ashamed of doubting Paul's apostleship. He had been with them. His life had been proven among them as he lived, out, lived life with them. He says in verse 7, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Now here's how mixed up the Corinthians were. They had found fault in the integrity Paul had showed in his own finances. You remember while living in Corinth, back in Acts, Paul worked with Aquila and Priscilla making tents. 
He was a bivocational pastor. He refused to draw a salary from the church because he didn't want anybody accusing him of only being in it for the money. That's some integrity. But instead of recognizing Paul's sincerity, the false teachers were saying the reason Paul didn't draw a salary was because he didn't deserve one. He lacked the credentials of a true apostle and a true pastor. Paul explains what he did in verse 8. He said, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. Paul supported himself while in Corinth by borrowing money from the church in Philippi and Berea and Thessaloniki in order to support his work there in Corinth. He was borrowing money from others in order to minister to the Corinthians. And yet they were complaining about it. Verse 9. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. And I was needy among you, but I didn't go to you for help. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. Paul had been so noble in his approach. How could the Corinthians have turned on him and had doubted him? Paul was a faithful shepherd. Yet the dumb sheep in Corinth chose to follow wolves in sheep's clothing rather than the apostle who loved them and sacrificed for them. You know, we marvel at their stupidity, and yet it gets repeated each week in America. I mean, I know pastors who love the Lord and love their people dearly, and they make personal sacrifices to serve, yet they get mistreated by their church. Whereas I know other pastors who try to dominate and manipulate the people and use them for their own ends, and yet the church treats them like royalty. The pompous preacher is loved more than the man of God. This is what was happening in Jeremiah's day. He speaks of it. Jeremiah 5 verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power. And Here's the sad truth. And my people love to have it so. It's sad, but fleshly people like flashy, forceful preachers. They don't like men who remind them that they need to walk humbly and live sacrificially. Paul tells us in verse 10, As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows All this effort to prove himself has nothing to do with Paul, really. He loves the believers there in Corinth. That's why he wants to to be their representative. He says, but what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Paul boasts and defends himself to shut up the false teachers who boast for no reason. Verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. The false teachers had called themselves super apostles. In reality, they were pseudo apostles. They were bogus. They majored in deceit. Paul said it shouldn't surprise the Corinthians to see Christianity feigned or faked. He explains, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Hey, don't be surprised when you see Christianity faked. 
Satan's strategy. Remember, Jesus referred to Satan as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Whereas Paul calls Satan an angel of light. It was Shakespeare who said, The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Satan is the master of disguise. He goes by a million aliases. He has a zillion fake IDs and phony passports. He hates to be identified. Don't you dare expect Satan to appear in red leotards and horns and a pointed tail and carrying a pitchfork. Satan is far too sophisticated to come at you as you might expect. The element of surprise is his most effective weapon. No, expect the enemy to attack wearing a short skirt and a low-cut blouse. Or to come as a father figure, an old guy that you can really trust. Or he's the friend who tells you that he's got the stuff that will help you kick your depression. Just take one of these and your problems will be gone. That's how Satan approaches us. In a pleasing shape. Expect Satan to offer you a deal so sweet, you almost miss the fine print. You almost overlook the one catch. Is it any wonder that the two products with the cleverest commercials are always beer and the lotto? Is that any wonder? I wish just once they would show you the truth. A family getting evicted because his dad gambled away the money, or a drunk with his head in the toilet. Just once, show us the truth. Paul concludes his caution on appearance. It can be deceiving, verse 15. Therefore, it is no great thing if his or Satan's ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. If Satan can appear as an angel of light, then obviously his demons can come in a Valentino suit with reverend in the front of their name. Beware. Beware of false apostles and false pastors. Verse 16. I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Again, it wasn't his habit of boasting about himself. But Paul knows he needs to muster a defense. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. In other words, I'm stooping down to the level of the Corinthians now. I'm going to speak to them in terms that they can understand. It's not what I want to do, but it's what I'm going to have to do to defend myself. And you got to read the next statement with sarcasm. He says, For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. In other words, you great, wise Corinthians. You think you're so wise. Surely you're... Just now for a few moments. He says, For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. In other words, they tolerated the false boasting of false apostles who were out to exploit them. Why in the world were they not listening to Paul? They were listening to the wrong people. Notice the list of crimes done by these false apostles. They, they put them in bondage, and they devoured, and they took from them, and they exalted themselves, and they struck them on the face. 
Now here's the modus operandi of a false man of God. Here's how bogus men manipulate and control their churches through bondage. They're great at laying on legalistic guilt trips on their people. They devour. They prey on people, not prey for people. They're on the take. If they do give, it, it, it's, it's because they want something in return. There's always an ulterior motive. They exalt themselves. Rather than grow, they swell. And you know there's a huge difference between growing and swelling. It's called pride. And then finally, they strike you on the face. In other words, they try to control you with insult. Why would anyone put up with such shenanigans in the name of God? And yet Paul is amazed at the gullibility of the Corinthians. He's as amazed at their gullibility as he is angry at the diabolical men who were passing themselves off as apostles of Christ. Verse 21, To our shame... I say that we were too weak for that. Again, notice his sarcasm. His critics have accused him of being weak. He's saying, yes, I'm glad I'm too weak to be abused in such a brazen way or to abuse you in such a brazen way. I'm too weak for that. I would never do that to you. I'm too weak. And he's being sarcastic. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Paul's going to match credentials with anybody, he says. These false apostles, they were nothing to him. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. I mean, despite whatever they're claiming, Paul can match their qualifications. Paul loved the Corinthians. Reminds me of the man who asked his wife one day. He said, honey, did you ever love anyone before me? His wife thought about it for a bit, and then she replied, No, darling, I, I once respected a man for his great intelligence. I, I admired another man for his remarkable courage. I was captivated by yet another man for his good looks and his charm. But with you, darling, well, how else can I explain it except love? <laughs> what mo motivated Paul to love these foolhardy Corinthians could have only been the love of God. He loved them. Paul has reminded them now of his jealousy toward them, his generosity to them. And now he's going to grow even bolder. He's going to enumerate his sufferings for them. He's going to talk about now all that he went through to bring them the gospel. Verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Again, he doesn't like to boast, but he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. And in the next few verses, Paul is going to hold up his missing fingertips. He's going to reveal an amazing list of sufferings many of which go unmentioned in the book of Acts. In fact, some of these sufferings, the only way we know about them is from this list. Verse 24. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times he took that. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
We have an account of only one in Acts chapter 16. Once I was stoned. Now this is mentioned in Acts chapter 14 and referred to again in Galatians 6 verse 17. Paul in Lystra was the victim of a flash mob who stoned him and left him for dead. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. Only one shipwreck is mentioned in the New Testament. That's in Acts chapter 27. Paul says three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day I had been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. This is what I went through to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He's, he's enumerating the sacrifices he had made for these Corinthians. These were all the results of, of persecution from the enemy. But he also suffered from the execution of his ministry. Notice he says, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. All he endured to bring them the gospel. And to top it off, here's the icing on the cake that was Paul's ministry, verse 28. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And this may have been Paul's most relentless stress. It was a concern that he carried daily. In all of his waking moments, he worried, he was concerned about the health and the welfare of the churches. All his other concerns were secondary to what he calls my deep concern for all the churches. And as a pastor, here's where I know a little of Paul's heart. I mean, it's always on my mind. Even on my day off, I'm not off. I'm still thinking about the church and the people who constitute the church. The churches I pastor are also my deep concern. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. I mean, Paul cared so deeply. He got emotional over the plight of the people there in Corinth. He bled when he heard that someone was... If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Paul is saying, if you want proof of my apostleship, here it is. But he doesn't point to statistics to numbers of converts or to churches that he planted. Instead, he's pointed to his sufferings. You see, to Paul, it was not his stars, but it was his scars that proved his legitimacy. Verse 31, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas, the, the king, was guarding the city of, Damas of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Okay, now Paul has been boasting. So what is the byline that he's going to use finally to illustrate the pinnacle of his success? In other words, how does he want to top off his resume? That's what he's been giving us, his resume. How does he want to top off his resume? I was preaching on Mars Hill in Athens. No, that's not the episode that he gives us. I was planning churches all across Asia. No, that's not what he tells us. How does he top off his resume? Well, I made this sneaky exit from Damascus. 
I was actually let down over the wall like a baby in a basket. Not exactly the most flattering picture for a promotional packet, would you say? And yet here was Paul's point. These false teachers in Corinth, they said that God chose them because of their exceptional talents and their righteousness. Paul says, for me, it's just the opposite. I'm nothing special. I'm just weak and ordinary and needy. They let me down over the wall in a basket. And yet God in His grace chose me to do great things. Now I've got to ask you, what kind of a guy do you want to follow? A guy full of pride? A guy full of himself? A guy who thinks he deserves God's blessing? Or a guy dependent upon God's grace? A humble man. Who do you want to follow? An Ivy League debutante? Or a fellow worker with three missing fingertips. But you knew his heart. You knew that he loved you. You knew that he was willing to serve alongside you. Who would you want to follow? Well, Paul is saying in tonight's chapters, I'm the guy with the missing fingertips.